I don't know about you, but one thing that I have noticed, and I noticed early on about the nature of the way I work, is that I have this intense desire for justice. I think things should be done rightly. Uh, In fact, uh, that sense seems to get all the more amped up and intense as I experience injustice, not just in general in the world, but injustice against me. Have you ever noticed that? Uh, This is not something my parents had to teach me. Uh, I still remember when I was four years old, uh, I had a prized possession, a prized toy. As a young man, I didn't have much, but I did have my big wheel, my three-wheeler. And that big wheel three-wheeler was like my prized possession. Uh, In fact, I used to like wheel that guy around the yard in the front yard, and my mom would be like, don't do that in your underwear and boots. And I was like, mom, come on. Like, this is how freedom looks for a young four-year-old in southern Mississippi. And um, I loved that. I loved that experience. And uh, it was something that I rode around probably every day, had a relationship with this, uh, with this car. And I remember one day, specifically, I had a bunch of friends over, and there was this girl that came over that was larger than me. Now, I'm not trying to be offensive here. Um, that's dangerous to call any woman large. Um, but just remember, I'm four years old, and I'm remembering this story in the sense of, like, sandlot. You remember in the Sandlot, there's that dog that looks like he's like a T-Rex in in the kids' memories, but he's actually like a normal-sized dog. Well, to me, she just looked way too big to be sitting on my big wheel. And she decided that she was going to sit on it, and I told her she couldn't because she was too big, and then she certainly was going to be sitting on the big wheel. And so she sat on it. And you know what happened? She broke the big wheel. And in that moment, I was so angry, and I didn't let go of it. Uh, in fact, I, I just thought to myself, how can I get back at her? Uh, one day I was walking in the neighborhood and I looked and I saw a window open into her, her bedroom. And, and what I was thinking was the Lord has left that window open. It's an opportunity. And I walked over and I, I saw her prize Smurf collection. Now remember, I was not regenerate at this point. I had not become a Christian yet. And I thought to myself, I'm just going to take one or two of those, the ones that look most important. And I took them out, and I walked over to her air condition where the fan was sort of going around. And with joy in my heart, I wish I could say this wasn't true, I dropped them in and watched them just sort of disintegrate in uh, this fan as it whirled around. And in that moment, I had joy over what I felt was revenge over the injustice that had been done to me. I thought, this, this is exactly the way that it ought to be. She wronged me. She broke my stuff. Now I've broken your stuff. Now we're good. Now I never told her about that because she probably would have beaten me up. But... What I find in this story is, is this sense that we have, this longing. Nobody taught me how to think that revenge is deserved when somebody wrongs you. But in my heart, it wasn't going to be made right until something happened. Now, we're back in our series in the life of David, an ordinary man who became an extraordinary king. And we're picking up in chapter 24 where David has had a chance to get revenge against Saul. Now, David is God's spirit-anointed king who will not lead with spear or sword, but in the power of God. Now, if, if you haven't been with us, uh, let me just catch you up to speed. D- David is living kind of in this already not yet reality of kingship. He's been anointed as the future king of Israel. But King Saul is the present king of Israel. And we find that King Saul is constantly seeking the life of David. In fact, since chapter 18, Saul has been in hot pursuit after David's blood. You'll remember, as you've tracked the story, that Saul has just killed all of the priests of, of Israel except for Abiathar in chapter 22. Why? Because he thought that they had helped David. 
In chapter 23, David had saved Keilah from the Philistines before the Lord warned him that Keilah would actually sell David and his men out. Can you imagine you've just saved the lives of a people against the Philistines and the Lord says, hey, that people you just saved are about to sell you out to King Saul. That's what happened in just the chapter before this. Uh, So he is running again. David is running and he runs to the Ziphites and the Ziphites sell out David and tell Saul where he is. And so here comes Saul yet again in chapter 23 and he's just about to put his hands around him when a messenger comes and says, hey, Saul, the Philistines are raiding uh, your territory. You need to go and save them. And so he had the bolt. Well, in chapter 24, Saul and his 3,000 men are back on the trail of David and his 600 men. Think about that. Saul has his 3,000. David has his 600. Uh, By my math, that's 5 to 1 ratio. That's not very good odds for David. And now in this scene that we're going to find today, David's actually hiding with all of these men deep in the cave of the Engedi, which is along the Dead Sea. And he finds here an opportunity, an opportunity to kill his enemy. A, a, a window is open, and he's asking himself what he ought to do. Well, our big idea this morning is this. Christ chooses mercy and grace, not revenge. He chooses mercy and grace over revenge. That's what we're going to be thinking about today. But as we do that, let's go to the Lord in prayer and ask for his help. Will you pray with me? Father, this morning we come before you as a people who have countless issues that are going on in our lives. Father, there are countless issues even at this moment that are looking to, in some ways, distract us from you. Even as we have sung about the beauty of the grace that is brought near to us, the, 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 the soul-saving uh, act of your son Jesus on the cross, which has brought us near to you. Even as we have sung those praises and heard others sung those praises, even now there are voices in our heart and some of our hearts that are loudly trying to convince us not to hear from you, that we don't need to hear your voice. And yet, Father, this morning there is no voice that we need to hear more than the voice of our God. And so today as we come before you, God, as we open up your word, we ask that these words would breathe life into our souls. Lord, speak to us today. Change us, transform us, equip us for what you have for us. It's in the great name of your Son that we do pray. Amen. Well, this morning, the first thing that we're going to see is in verses 1 to 4, that providence provides David with an opportunity for revenge. Providence offers David an opportunity for revenge. Revenge. Now, these first four verses, they really set the stage for our text today. So, so look there again with me, and I want to look at these verses again. Verses 1 to 4. This is what he says. When Saul returned from following the Philistines, he was told, Behold, David is in the wilderness of the Engedi. And then Saul took 3,000 chosen men out of all of Israel and went to seek David and his men in front of the wild goat's rocks. And he came to the sheepfolds, by the way, where there was a cave. And Saul went in to relieve himself. Now David and his men were sitting in the innermost parts of the cave. And the men of David said to him, Here is the day of which the Lord said to you, Behold, I will give your enemy into your hand, and you shall do to him as it shall seem good to you. Then David arose and stealthily cut off a corner of Saul's robe. Now, you really can't miss the irony of this episode in David's life. You know, so far, Saul and David have looked, as I've said before, like 
the Wally Coyote chasing the Roadrunner. Uh, he's constantly almost in his grasp and, and just at the moment that it seems that Saul has him and there's nowhere to go, David disappears. He's been in hot pursuit of David's trail, scouring the wilderness with all of the king's horses and all the king's 3,000 men. Messengers consistently alert Saul to David's position. David and his 600 men consistently evade Saul. And just as Saul is grasping for David this last time, David has disappeared yet again. That's what's happened in chapters 23, when a Philistine attack diverted Saul. That's what he's talking about in that first part of verse 1. He's back from that attack, Saul is now. He, it's almost as though the, the, the attack didn't even really matter. Notice no details about the Philistine attack. It's just that it happened, he got diverted, and now Saul is right back at it. His number one priority is to take care of David. He's back to the chase. But he has to pull over the caravan on this chase because even kings have to take pit stops in verse 3. And he enters a cave all by himself. As he goes into this cave, he's by himself. And of all the caves that Saul could have chosen along the way, and I've, I've been to this scene, there are many caves, there are caves all over the place. He could have chosen tons of caves, but he chose the cave where David and his 600 men were hiding. Now, what do you think the author of 1 Samuel expects the reader to think here? Saul happening upon this cave. Do you think the writer is thinking to himself, oh, I hope that whenever they read this, they're thinking, how fortuitous that Saul chose this cave of all caves. I mean, this story would be super boring if he hadn't chosen that cave. Or are you thinking, oh, man, what dumb luck that Saul would enter into this cave? I mean, he's been looking for him all over the place, and all of a sudden he's accidentally happened upon him. I don't think so. So this text really smells, I believe, of Ruth, of the kind of situation we find in Ruth 2-3. I don't know if you remember that scene where Ruth, the Moabitess, uh, she finds herself in desperate straits and she is going to the land of Israel and she's in this land and all of a sudden we find this little line that says, and she happened upon the fields of Boaz, dot, 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 who happens to be her kinsman redeemer. I don't think this is meant to be read in the sense of this is an accident. See, this wasn't a mere circumstance or a happenstance, but the providence of God. What irony. Saul, he took a break from pursuing David to find privacy in a cave where he found an audience with the very man whose life he has been seeking. And it was so dark, he couldn't even see David right in front of his face. An image really for the whole book of 1 Samuel and the way that Saul is always blind to what's going on. Well, here he is, face to face, confronted with David. David, think about it. David. David's been promised the kingdom, but Saul is still on the throne. And here he is. Saul planned to relieve himself, but God planned for him to encounter David. See, David's exhausted from running for his life. He's terrified. He's hiding in the depths of this cave for his life. Maybe you feel that way this morning. But as he's sitting in this cave, he probably has the sword of Goliath that he used to cut Goliath's head off in one hand and a spear in the other as Saul is crouching vulnerably before him. Do you see the scene? David's terrified of this man. And here he is, and here's his opportunity. And he's got the weapons, and he's got his 600 men, and he's all alone. 
See, providence has provided David with an opportunity, a way out. And that's how David's men read it. Did you catch what they said in verse 4? It says, and the men say to David, here is the day of which the Lord said to you, behold, I will give your enemy into your hand and you shall do to him as it shall seem good to you. And then David arose and stealthily cut off a corner of Saul's robe. It seems as though in some ways the voices are having some kind of reason with him. David's men, who by the way also had been on the run for their lives. Don't forget who's in this crowd. You've got Abiathar, who just two chapters before watched this man kill his whole family. Do you think maybe he was speaking in the ear of David? And they see this as the moment that David can take his throne by force with sword and spear. And who would blame David for taking revenge of this moment? I mean, isn't there something even in your own heart when you read this that gets a little bit angry that David doesn't kill him? See, David's men's words, they're interesting though. If you just really pay close attention, you'll remember that Jonathan made a covenant with David back in 1 Samuel 20. You remember that covenant? He, he told Jonathan, may the Lord take vengeance on David's enemies. That's what Jonathan told David. I want him to take vengeance on your enemies. But there is no record of the Lord telling David, behold, I will give your enemy in your hand and you shall do to him as it seems good to you. That's not the, the word of the Lord. See, the only promise that we have is that God will take vengeance on David's enemies. That God will do it. And that David covenants with Jonathan that he actually will not lift his hand against Jonathan's house. And by the way, Saul is part of the house of Jonathan. Now this might be a bigger deal here when he cuts off that corner of Saul's robe than you realize. See, David, when he takes this corner off of King Saul's robe, it's not like he's thinking, wow, this is a king. It'd be really cool to have the memorabilia of a famous rock star or something, right? It's not like the guy who tried to put uh, Britney Spears' like, used chewing gum on eBay. It's not that kind of thing. It's not like he's thinking, oh, I need to get a little bit of his hair so I can just sort of sniff it at nights and think about what kingship looks like. That's not the image. No, what we find here is actually something a little bit deeper. Commentator David Firth, he, he speaks of this and he explains it this way. David cuts off the corner of Saul's robe as a symbolic claim to the kingdom. Note that Mesopotamia, a robe's fringe, could be used as a symbol of authority. And though the sense of this is varied, here it seems that he is taking the, 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 the claim to the throne by force. Now, I even wonder as he was cutting off the edge of that robe, if he did it with his sword. Just cut it right off, taking it by sword. Have you ever found yourself in a situation, maybe not exactly like this, right? In a cave with your enemy, like going to the bathroom next to you, that'd be weird. But have you ever found yourself in another kind of weird situation, a dark cave of life where you're at the end of your rope and there seems to be an opportunity to take things into your own hands? You know, our hearts, they can hunger for revenge whether you are six years old or 16 years old or 60 years old. That desire for revenge, it feels fresh, doesn't it? When somebody has hurt you, harmed you, maybe your friends are in the background as this happens. Even using scripture, perhaps in the wrong way, like David's friends, but speaking into your ear when you are wrong to encourage you to get yours. Uh, in fact, this last week uh, I was re-watching Remember the Titans with my sons, and I was reminded of a great line uh, that Julius tells Wood, their lineman, and Julius is talking to Wood. Wood's trying to encourage him to actually try to play hard. 
And Julius tells Wood that he's not playing hard. He says, nah, what I'm going to do is I'm going to look out for myself. I'm going to get mine. You ever hear that, that kind of voice in your own heart? I'm going to get mine. I'm going to get mine. What's owed me, what's, what's, what's owed me, what I ought to have, what's been taken from me, I've been wronged, and I'm, I'm going to get mine. Or, or maybe you've read what appears to be an opportunity in this life as a divine invitation to action. The, the window is open because God left it open for me. I have the spear and the sword in hand, and here's my enemy. You know, I, I long for us to have discerning hearts that don't say, oh, spear, sword, enemy, death. I, I don't think that that's the kind of thing that God is encouraging us in his word. I think he wants us to discern more. Look, discern what's going on in your life. And there might be opportunities that don't mean that they are from God. You know, I've watched mature Christians, even over the last couple of weeks, use their platforms at conferences. And they haven't used necessarily spear and sword to take out their enemies. No, they use Facebook and Twitter. Have you noticed that? Those are the weapons of the day. Do you think about the way that you're using social media and other platforms and the way that you are working with and working out your problems with others, even your enemies? Now, there's a way that we can actually fight with others and even have the right sort of point of view and even have the right theology. But man, it doesn't look like the fruit of the Spirit when it's playing out in real time. Or maybe you think that you're above the exception to the rules, right? You're one of those exception to the rules kind of people. Is that you? I feel like that sometimes. I like to argue that in my own heart. See, David is a future anointed king, and Saul is a present anointed king. If David is an, has an overrealized eschatology here, you know what I'm saying? If he's seeing the future before it has come, then what that means is, is that timing doesn't matter. He doesn't need to wait on God. And here's what that means. Saul's dead. But let me ask you, maybe you're struggling this morning with harbored bitterness or anger towards all kinds of people that you'd like to catch alone in a bathroom or even a, a cave. Maybe it's a boss or a teacher or a friend, a, a doctor who gave you a, a diagnosis or a prognosis that was not helpful or that led you to an even worse spot. Maybe it's even your spouse. It's not my spouse because that would be a horrible thing to say up here, right? But maybe in your heart you you're thinking, my spouse is this person. You, you, you want revenge, and you're angry. And you don't even know how to give words to articulate the reason that you're, you're angry and you're mean to this person. But it, it's because you're harboring an injustice. Now, don't miss this. God's people seek God's will in God's way in God's time. You hear that? God's people. God's people seek God's will. Not, not their own, like to do what's good in their own eyes. Seek God's will in God's way. I'm not trying to manipulate things and be disobedient to God and seeking out the desires of my heart. I'm trusting God in this. And you do it in God's time. I will wait on the Lord. I'm going to wait until he shows up. I'm not going to try to cheat the system. I'm not going to try to dishonor God by forcing timing that's not God's timing. That means that God's people need to know God's word. They need to seek God's face in prayer and patiently wait on God's deliverance both today and on the last day. But catch this, God seems to provide David an opportunity that he could see as an opportunity for revenge. Do you see it? He's thinking, this is it. God has given me the opportunity. I've got the sword. Here he is. But second, David shows ridiculous mercy to his enemy. That, that's what's shocking. 
He shows ridiculous mercy to his enemy in verses 5 to 7. Now, to be honest, again, when I read this section of the text, it kind of bothers me. I'm a David guy. I'm for David. I don't like Saul. I want David to do what he ought to do to Saul. But check out what happens in verse 5. It says, and, and afterward, David's heart struck him because he had cut off a corner of Saul's robe. Now, take note that David felt conviction. Did you see that? His heart struck him. Do you see the connection there? Have you sensed conviction from the Lord and you can identify with this striking of the heart where you feel like God himself hits your heart, strikes your heart in a way that says, no, not there, don't go there, not like that. See, a heart after God's own heart is struck by what strikes God. This is the language of conviction. Sin is rebellion against God. Now, if Jesus is king, we don't have time to linger here, but, but catch this. If Jesus is king, your heart will be struck when you sin against God. It will be struck with this conviction. You are in a devastatingly bad place if your heart doesn't strike you when you sin. Do you hear me? If, if you are sinning and your heart is not convicting you, then you are in a worse place than you know. There is a beauty and a sweetness to the conviction of the Lord. You know, if you're in school and you're cheating and you don't feel guilty and filthy because you have cheated, then there is something that is going on spiritually with you that's not healthy, it's not good. If you are looking at pornography, if you're a man or a woman and you're viewing those things and your, your heart isn't striking you and causing you to despair, and to be sad and sorrowful before the Lord. If you're not sensing that, you're in a bad place. If you can gossip and slander others and, and you feel, leave feeling energized, not stricken, it's unhealthy. If you're following bad theology that makes much of man and woman doing what seems good to them, like David's friends were saying, but makes little of God not doing what seems good to God, it's not good. And if you're cheating at Monopoly, it's okay because that's part of the unofficial rules of the game. <laughs> but no, we need hearts that, that really are moved and pierced by God. Now, I know this might seem strange to say and it might sound funny, but there is something sweet and life-giving in the life of a believer when our hearts strike, wound, and even break us over our sins. The, the Spirit of God strikes us so that He can heal us. So when was the last time that your heart struck you over your sin? Now, I'm not talking about your heart striking you over your neighbor's sin. I mean your sin. Praise God that God does this in the hearts of believers and leads us in the way of everlasting. But notice in verses 6 to 7 that David quickly turns and tells his men what it is that convicts him. Did you see that? Uh, look there again in verses 6 to 7. He, he says, this is what's going on in my heart. He says this, The Lord forbid that I should do this thing to my Lord, the Lord's anointed, to put out my hand against him, seeing he is the Lord's anointed. So David persuaded his men with these words and did not per permit them to attack Saul. And Saul rose up and left the cave, and he went on his way. Now, here you know that repetition draws attention. You know that repetition draws attention. 
you know that, I'm not going to keep going. But you get it. There's a reason that we repeat things. We want to make sure that you don't miss it. And here, notice that David calls Saul the Lord's anointed twice at the beginning and the end, reinforcing this is presently today in the current state of affairs the anointed king of Israel who sits on the throne. Saul is a present king and David is a future king. Now, I'm sure that David wonders, how is God going to work this out, this conundrum, this enigma, this puzzle? You'll remember that David told Goliath that he didn't come in the power of the sword or the spear, but in the name of the Lord of hosts whom he had defied. Later, David had made a covenant with Saul's son, Jonathan, that he would not lift his hand against Jonathan's house, which included Saul. And David saw his actions in this moment against God's anointed in light of God's glory. See, it was God's glory that began to interpret his actions, and it cut him to the heart. See, cutting the hem of God's anointed king in some ways was rebellion against the Lord. And David's clearly... He's not upset here because he's a pacifist, right? This is the guy who's killed his 10,000. It's not why he's upset. No, on this day, he doesn't kill Saul, not because he thinks that he's not supposed to go out and fight for the people of God. David chooses here in this moment, don't miss this, to show mercy to his great enemy Saul. In fact, he fights for mercy. It doesn't show it in the English as well, but in verse 7, that word for persuade, it's not just a domesticated word for, oh, that was a good argument that you made. Thank you. We don't think that we will kill him and string him up and cut his head off. No, the word for persuade is actually a strong word. It's a word that actually means to cut or tear men up with your words. He, He was speaking harshly, hardly, forcefully to his men. He's literally beating back the voices that are crying out for blood with a declaration of mercy. And what an example of godly living here. David had ample reason to kill Saul. It seemed providence dropped Saul into his very hands and God promised David the kingdom. Saul was a tyrant of a king who sought his life. Saul is public enemy number one and yet David shows him mercy. How audacious. You know, throughout we've said that we're not David. David is God's spirit-anointed king who paves the way for Jesus. But he is a moral example for us here as he displays what it feels like when someone shows a ridiculous kind of mercy. See, David chooses to continue to run for his life while he trusts God. That was the decision that David is making as he shows mercy to Saul. He's saying, I'm going to continue to run for my life and trust God. Trust that he will not allow this man to take my life. Trust that he will make good on the promises that he has made for me. Trust that he is going to use me to bring about the future for Israel that he has promised us. And David interprets this opportunity, this opportunity for vengeance It's actually an opportunity for one of the grandest displays of mercy in all of the Bible, not revenge. Do you see the choice? That moment when you get to a place and you've been longing for the window to be open, when you've been longing for the opportunity to actually take vengeance and get yours, when God says this opportunity is for something quite different, this isn't an opportunity for vengeance, but for the mercy of God to be on full display. Is that your heart? It's not always mine. 
It's not the way that I naturally work apart from the Spirit of God. I don't know about you, but I I just know that this is something that God really has to work up in me uniquely and specially. And this is something that takes a lot of heart work to make sure that I'm staying in a place where I'm looking to show mercy when I don't want to. There are occasions that are going to come when, when you're going to have to fight extra hard for this. I, I remember uh, it was 11 years ago that I had a really good friend of mine, a, a pastor who I was pastoring with in Florida, suddenly die. Uh, there was one day he got sick. I was eating lunch with him. The next day, uh, he's being airlifted to the coast, to the hospital. And the next day, I am speeding down the interstate with his wife, where we show up just in time to look at his lifeless body laying on the table before us, and us scratching our heads and thinking, what in the world is going on here? I will never forget the way that she fell apart and melted in my arms, weeping and screaming over the loss of her husband, a woman who has two young children. I'm sitting there in that moment, and I'm thinking, this is a a dark day. And I had to preach the next day. He was supposed to preach. I had to preach. And right as I was getting ready to to go up to the pulpit, I was marveling at the fact that this woman was at church with her two young children when somebody shared a story that had just happened in Sunday school. This woman, um, she was kind of serpent-like, famous for her hissing, and she she didn't like people very much, kind of, kind of rude, so you take it for what it is. Most of the people there are incredibly sweet Christians, and then there was the snake lady. And so um, it turns out that that morning in Sunday school, she just commented uh, when she heard that the pastor had died, oh, well, I guess that's one down, one to go. Speaking of me. Now, I didn't really care about me at the point. I knew she was a snake, but I'm thinking of this, this wife who's just watched her husband die, hearing this. And I wish I could say that in that moment, the first thought that came to mind was, oh, I just need to be merciful like Jesus. That's not the thought that came to mind. In fact, it wasn't really the second thought that came to mind of, like, what does this look like in front of the Lord of glory? How should I be thinking about this? Not the thought. It was brokenness and it was anger. You know, and here what, what we find with David is that he's facing someone who is, if you really understand the nature of who Saul is and what he he has done, far worse than any old woman like this that you could imagine. Far worse. And yet here, David is coming and showing mind-blowing mercy to her. See, David models a a godlike kind of mercy that we should long to imitate and know is not natural to us. He's fighting to protect his enemy from his friends. Do you see that? He's arguing with his men to protect this one who is public enemy number one. I'm just curious, when was the last time that you did that? That you were literally seeking a calm resolve and mercy on someone who didn't deserve mercy? I'm not saying that she didn't need to be rebuked, wasn't rebuked. I'm not saying that there aren't times where there needs to be correction and discipline. But is our heart for mercy in the way that David is? You know, what if we're missing opportunities to show mercy because our hearts are only looking for blood? You know, what, what if, what if you have a friend who is horrible to you and it's not about you and the biggest thing and the best thing that you could do for them is display what Christ-like mercy looks like? What if that profound display changed their lives, it shocked their system to see something that was otherworldly and completely different than they experienced from their family, their coworkers, or any friend they've ever had? Here David is showing us breathtaking mercy. And what if we are too consumed with injustices that have been done against us to show mercy to others? We're not in a good place if that's where we are. So who do you need to show mercy to today? Are you you sleeping with an enemy that needs mercy? 
And by that, I mean your husband or wife. Someone that you perceive is is having ought with that, that needs to be reconciled and cleaned up in a way that you're thinking, I can't. You don't know what she's done. You don't know what he's done. I know what Jesus has done. So you're looking for an opportunity to cut them down when God is actually offering you an opportunity to shock them with his ridiculous mercy. And maybe you have a supervisor at work who's really giving you a hard time. And even more because you're a Christian. Have you ever had one of those? I've had those. They're fun. Maybe you've even been mocked or shamed by a boss in front of others. And doesn't that just make you want to repay evil with good? Is that what you think? It's not what my heart naturally does. Maybe you've experienced a friend or a family member or a coach or or a teacher who has treated you poorly. Maybe it's even somebody here at church. It's made you feel awkward by the way that they have wronged you. And you want to get back at them and set things right. And I'm talking like mafia style. You know what I'm talking about? Like, I don't just want to hurt you. I want to hurt you and your friends and your kids and everybody. But what about great sins against you? You know, this does create kind of a problem. Like, does this mean that God's not fair? Does this mean that, that, that God is allowing people to do horrible things to me and that justice won't be done? Like abuse. What do you do if somebody has sinned greatly against me? They've abused me or, or someone who has killed a family member. Or how do you come back from something like that? How do you show mercy there? Does that mean that I forget justice or that God does forget justice? Well, don't miss this. David doesn't forget justice in the midst of this display of mercy. Did you catch that? In verses 8 to 15. David's mercy trusts his great avenger for justice. His mercy is coming out of a heart of trust for God, that he is his great avenger. Take note of what David does and says to his enemy. He runs out here. He's spoken to his men. Now he's speaking to, to Saul. He catches him. And here's what happens. Look in verses 8 to 15. It says, Afterward, David also arose and went out of the cave and called after Saul, My lord, the king. And when Saul looked behind him, David bowed with his face to the earth and paid homage. And David said to Saul, Why do you listen to the words of men who say, Behold, David seeks your harm? Behold, this day your eyes have seen how the Lord gave you today into my hand in the cave. And some told me to kill you, but I spared you. I said, I will not put out my hand against my Lord, for he is the Lord's anointed. See my father, see the corner of your robe in my hand? For by the fact that I cut off the corner of your robe and did not kill you, you may know and see that there is no wrong or treason in my hands. I have not sinned against you. Though you hunt my life to take it, may the Lord judge between me and you, and may the Lord avenge me against you. But my hand shall not be against you. As the proverb of the ancient says, Out of the wicked comes wickedness. But my hand shall not be against you. After whom has the king of Israel come out? After whom do you pursue? After a dead dog? After a flea? May the Lord therefore be judge and give sentence between me and you and see to it and plead my cause and deliver me from your hand. See, David chases Saul down. And how many of you would show this kind of honor that David shows to Saul to Saul? David asks why Saul is listening to men like Doeg from chapter 22, who convinces Saul that David wants to kill him. David says, hey, I've got voices speaking in my ear too. My men were just telling me to kill you, and I had opportunity, and I didn't, because you are the Lord's anointed. Now, David is also the Lord's anointed, which is ironic. But don't miss this. 
In verse 10, David says, The Lord give you today, He gave you today into my hand in the cave. Here's the corner of your robe to prove it that the Lord gave you to me. And yet, I didn't kill you, Saul. Now why? Does he say because justice doesn't matter, only mercy does? No, in verse 12 he says, May the Lord judge between me and you. May the Lord avenge me against you. But my hand shall not be against you. And then in verse 15 he closes by saying that he asked the Lord to plead his cause and deliver him from Saul's hand. Saul, in in his mercy, it's coming out of a heart that is entrusting itself to God to do whatever God will do, even if it costs David everything. So he trusts that God will make good on his promises. He trusts that God is the just judge, but that he is also the avenger who actively fights for his people. I'm sure David has no idea how God will resolve the conflict of having those two anointed kings. But as Doug first says in his commentary, if Yahweh can anoint two men, then Yahweh must resolve the resulting conflict. Not David and his manipulation. Not David and his, soul, his, his spear and his sword. But here's what is clear. Don't miss this. This is a deep theology that will help you show ridiculous mercy. David trusts that God can show mercy and God will deal with his enemies. David can show mercy as he needs to, and God can deal with his enemies. See, David trusts that he can show mercy and that God will still keep his promises. He's trusting that he can show mercy and that God will still deliver him even when he can't see a way out. Is that that you? Like today you're thinking like, man, I am hemmed in and I don't know how to get out of this. And it feels like if I don't take the way out, then there is no way out. There's no way out of the cave. But do you trust that God will deliver you? And don't miss what David calls himself in verse 13. He calls himself a dead dog. I mean, I love this image. David's like, why are you messing yourself, troubling yourself with me? I'm a dead dog. I'm not even a dead dog. I'm the flea on the dead dog. I'm nothing. Why are you bothering yourself following me? See, trusting God is your avenger who fights for justice. It gives birth to mercy and humility. If we really understand God's justice, it ought to make us merciful. It ought to make us humble. And taking justice in your own hands, it always looks desperate and worldly. But it takes otherworldly faith to show mercy to your enemies, trusting that God will bring about the justice. So I'm just asking you this morning, do you, do you trust God with the injustices that keep you up at nights? Are you trusting God with those? Those injustices that you're like, I just can't let this go. I can't stop thinking about it. I can't sleep well at nights. Are you willing to trust God with it? Well, fourth, notice that David shows amazing grace, repaying evil with good in verses 16 to 22. Catch how the story ends. In verses 16 to 22, Saul speaks back to David. And here's what Saul says. As soon as David had finished speaking these words to Saul, Saul said, Is this your voice, my son David? And Saul lifted up his voice and wept. He said to David, You are more righteous than I, for you have repaid me good, whereas I have repaid you evil. And you have declared this day how you have dealt with me, and that you did not kill me when the Lord put me into your hands. For if a man finds his enemy, will he let him go away safe? 
And so may the Lord reward you with good for what you have done to me this day. And now behold, I know that you shall surely be king, and that the kingdom of Israel shall be established in your hand. Swear to me therefore by the Lord that you will not cut off my offspring after me, and that you will not destroy my name out of my father's house. And David swore this to Saul. And then Saul went home. But David and his men, they went up to the stronghold. Now this is the first time that Saul says with certainty that he knows David will be king of Israel. And then he begs David to swear not to cut off his offspring after him or to destroy his name. And David swore. So Saul went home. But David, David's back up in the cave. What a merciful king. But there's something more here. Did you notice David kept his promise in 2 Samuel 9? Do you remember that? In 2 Samuel 9, you can look there. David keeps his promise. After taking the throne, he keeps that promise to Jonathan and to Saul that he would not end their lineage, their line. See, that was normal status fare for kings when they would take over. They, they just got rid of all of the, the line that preceded him. But here, David is keeping his promise. David sought after a member of the house of Saul in 2 Samuel 9. And he said, I... I need someone. Is there anyone that is from the house of Jonathan and Saul that can help me make good on my promise? And they said, well, I mean, we've got one guy that we found. What are you going to do to him? And he's like, look, no, do you have a guy? And and they're basically like, yeah, here's Mephibosheth. He's crippled in the feet. But but he's he's left. And if if you want him, they brought him to him. And so he shows up. And as David has him brought up to him, you'll remember that David... As he calls him, just in the text that we read, what was it that he called himself before Saul? It was a dead dog, wasn't it? He called him a dead dog when he showed Saul mercy. But catch what happens in 2 Samuel 9, 6-8. This is what it says. And Mephibosheth, the son of Jonathan, son of Saul, came to David and fell on his face and paid homage. And David said, Mephibosheth. And he answered, Behold, I am your servant. And David said to him, Do not fear, for I will show you kindness for the sake of your father Jonathan, and I will restore you all the land of of Saul your father, and you shall eat at my table always. And he paid homage and said, What is your servant that you should so regard for a dead dog such as I? What mercy and what grace. Do you see it? David shows Saul's house amazing grace, inviting Mephibosheth to come and eat at his table always. The child of his enemies. He says, come and eat. Now, let me just ask you this. Who are you in the story? Now, when you read this, who is it that you're thinking that you most identify with? How many of us think of ourselves as David running for our lives and we're even thinking about people that have wronged us like David? The reality is that David points us to the greater coming Messiah, Jesus Christ, who died for us while we were still sinners and enemies of God. Really, in this story, I think we're a lot more like Saul. We resist King Jesus and his right rule over our lives. We are all sinners, born sinners. We We are enemies of God as humans. And Jesus didn't come to take his throne with sword and spear, but with the cross, See, God's mercy and justice met at the cross. And catch this, we deserve justice but received mercy there. 
See, the cross is the reason that we can sing of amazing grace that saved wretches like us. Now, if you're this morning and you're not Christian, um, I just want to encourage you that God is a good God, and he is merciful. But the reality that we are told that we are born into, that we are, by virtue of being fallen sinners who come from the line of Adam, is that we are enemies of God. And catch this, just as Saul was staring at David in that cave and could not see the judgment that was so near, that is exactly where all of us are left to ourselves apart from a work of the grace of God. We are all a step away from God's justice and need God himself to come and to rescue us from himself. See, he is just and he needs to seek justice for those who have sinned against him and others. I'm sure you want justice for yourself. But that really ought to make you consider the God who deserves justice as well. And our standing before him is guilty. But the good king, he has extended mercy to you, King Jesus. He died for your acts of treason against God, and he invites you to put your faith in Christ's work on the cross, dying for your sins. So today, if you repent and believe and put your faith in Christ, you can become not an enemy of God, but a child of God, invited to eat at the table of Christ. In fact, we're taking communion today. And as we take communion, this is a picture of the feast of God, a foreshadowing of the great feast that awakes us when Jesus returns, where we are dining with God and God's people. That's what this is a picture of, what we're about to do. So if you're not a Christian, in a moment we're going to hand out communion, and I encourage you just to let it pass you by, because this meal is for baptized believers who have put their faith in Christ, who have declared, I follow King Jesus. Those who have said, I have covenanted together with the people to walk towards Christ and with Christ until Christ returns or I die and I go home to be with him. So if that's you this morning, you're not a Christian, you haven't put your faith in Christ in that way, let it pass you by. But let me encourage you in this. Don't leave without talking to me about how you can come and eat at the table of the Lord. It is a good table. It's a table where mercy and grace reign. And I would love nothing more than for you to be a part of that meal with us in the future. But Christians... You know, we ought to look like our King Jesus, shouldn't we? Don't you want to look like the King here? Don't you want to look like David? Don't you want to look like the Messiah? The one who enters into an opportunity, a decision. Do I, I show revenge or do I show mercy? And he says, I'm going to show you the mercy of God on display. He tells a story in Matthew 18, Jesus does, about a servant who is forgiven a great debt that he cannot pay. And he is so happy. Wouldn't it be great if somebody just called in and said, like, hey, all that money you owe, it's gone. It's covered. That'd be a good day, right? It was a good day for him. Here's what that servant did. He went and found another fellow servant who owed him some money. And he said, hey, I just had a really good day. I'm looking for a windfall. You need to pay me. Pay up. It's the day. And this servant doesn't have the money to pay the servant that was just forgiven. And so what does he do? Does he show mercy because he's experienced great mercy? Is that what that story's about? Just talking about the greatness of the mercy of this servant, this fellow servant? I wish it was, but that's not what happens. No, the servant has him thrown in jail. And when the master who forgave him hears, he comes back and he's angry. And he says this, the master who is King Jesus speaking to this servant says this, should you have had mercy on your fellow servant as I had mercy on you? And then he threw him in jail to pay off all of his debts. You know, as we prepare for communion, brothers and sisters, at Christ's table, 
we ought to be asking our hearts, what enemies do we need to show mercy to is a display of the mercy of God. Who has received mercy more than us in Christ? Has anybody received mercy like you or me have received mercy? I am a sinner, and God has forgiven me, not because of me, but because of who Jesus is. I am forgiven greatly. When I come to this table, I'm reminded not of the greatness of Josh, but the greatness of Jesus. Should we not be a people who, as we come to this table, be reminded of the mercy of God? Who is it that you need to be reconciled with? How are you praying for the good of your enemies? What great mercy Jesus has shown us from God, who is both just and our justifier. See, those who know mercy, they show mercy. Those who know grace, they show grace. So as we take time to to pray in this moment, as we're waiting for the elements to be distributed, as the band comes forward, and as the people come down to help distribute the elements, I want you to just take this time to pray and ask yourself about your heart. Who are the enemies that need to be forgiven? Who are those who need to be shown the mercy of God? Let's take some time and pray that as we prepare and we send out the elements. Let's pray. Spend some time in prayer.